from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. This is the beloved community. Resources for activism. I'm John Shuck. Every second Friday at 9 a.m., catch the beloved community. The title of this month's show is Losing Our Religion, 9-11 Truth and the Political Jesus. The truth about politics, religion, and Jesus. I am a senior pastor in a small town church. And suddenly I realized, I don't believe any of this. So what do you do if you're still a minister, but you don't believe in God? That is from the trailer of the new feature-length documentary, Losing Our Religion. Leslie Mayer is the president and CEO of Zoot Pictures out of Winnipeg, Manitoba. She was allowed access to the 600 members of the Clergy Project, a safe haven for preachers from all faiths who no longer believe in God. The film is now being shown at screenings and in theaters in the United States and Canada. It'll be screened in the Portland Metro November 30th. If that isn't controversial enough, we'll delve into 9-11. David Chandler is a Portland resident. He's a retired high school physics teacher who made NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, revise their report on the destruction of the World Trade Center Building 7, a 47-story building that collapsed in the late afternoon of September 11, 2001. There were three skyscrapers that were destroyed on December 11th in New York City. David Chandler showed that Building 7 fell at free fall, that is, at the acceleration of gravity, for two and a half seconds. David Chandler talks with me about what that means. I mean, that statement by itself says it was a demolition. David Chandler's website is www.911speakout.org. So, we have ministers who don't believe in the religious dogmas their churches expect them to believe. We have evidence of a false flag operation and cover-up by the United States government. What else can I squeeze into this show? How about a political Jesus? Celine Lilly and Art Dewey are members of the West Star Institute, a critical think tank for religious issues, particularly early Christianity. Dr. Lilly is the director of the Tonho Center in Boulder, Colorado, and the author of The Rape of Eve... The Transformation of Roman Ideology in Three Early Christian Retellings of Genesis. Arthur Dewey is professor of religion at Xavier University and the author of Inventing the Passion, How the Death of Jesus Was Remembered. They will be speaking about the political Jesus. Leslie Mayer is with me via Skype from Winnipeg, Manitoba. She produces documentary films about everything from drones to health care. Losing Our Religion is her first feature-length documentary about ministers who don't believe in God. Well, I think, I think one of the things that, as a documentary filmmaker, um, that you have to have is, is some curiosity. So um, that's really what led me to chase down this film, was I'd read about the first study that Daniel Dennett and Linda Lascola came out with, Preachers Who Are Not Believers, that was published in Evolutionary Psychology. And I thought, well, that's really, that's really interesting. I'd never thought of it from that perspective. Uh, you know, I, I read a fair number of secular and atheist and free thought type blogs, and I just found that really fascinating. And then a little later, they came out with the second study, and the clergy project had been formed. And I, I just found it 
amazing that there was such a large community of non-believing clergy. Um, and so that's where I kind of started from, was looking at non-believing clergy, and then kind of branched out into, after seeing what some of the non-believing clergy do after they they come out, come out atheist, as, as they say, um, that some of them were actually forming secular communities that had you know, some similarities to church. And as someone who is raised in a very, an extremely liberal Christian tradition where, you know, belief is not necessarily mandated, I guess, would be a way to kind of explain it. Um, and not very, not very much different from Southminster, really, except that we still said all of the, the religious words in the Nicene Creed, but nobody really took it that seriously. Um, I didn't have any particular hostility to church. In fact, I quite enjoyed it growing up. So that really spoke to me and kind of pulled me in that direction as well. So, you know, it was it wound up being a film about two things rather than just the one. The documentary has no narration. The story is masterfully edited. So the character's own words move the narrative forward. The two central characters are Brendan and Jen. We look very closely at one couple where he is a pastor who loses his his belief in God and she is still a believer. So there there was a lot of friction in that marriage and there was a lot of, of pain, you know, in coming to terms with the new normal for them. It was it was a really interesting um, place to be. Uh, and also, you know, you just you, we really came to 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 love that couple while we were making the film because they were such lovely people going through such a hard time. You just, your heart went out to them, really. Denominational structures don't want to be bothered with educated clergy who challenge the church to examine its own beliefs. Greta Vosper, the atheist minister from Toronto, who last year was declared unsuitable for ministry, is featured in this film. I was raised in the United Church of Canada, the same denomination that Greta Vosper is part of, and mm -hmm. she was one of our, our people in the film. And the resistance that they're having to Greta's point of view, um, I found really interesting, just because I had a history with that particular institution, which I don't. most people in the States won't know about it, but it is ultra-liberal or has been ultra-liberal over its over the course of its history, the first one to allow um, same-sex marriages, uh, gay clergy, uh, all of all of the above, like, you know, really strong on women's and uh, and race rights, indigenous rights in Canada is a big deal. So they're, they're really this organization that you would think would be at the cutting edge of saying, how do we reinvent ourselves for the 21st century? And what we've seen is um, a tremendous pushback reaction. Uh, we even got a, a, actually a review in the United Church Observer. They have a little magazine. I, I think the comment in there was that I lacked a nuanced understanding of the church. Not that, you know, I'm talking about something that they need to look at or something that maybe we should all talk about. It was like, well, you, you don't have a nuanced understanding. So it's, 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 it's not me, it's you. <laughs> the documentary is called Losing Our Religion. I'm speaking with the writer and producer of the film, Leslie Mayer. 
Also featured is Bart Campolo. Bart's father, Tony Campolo, is a famous evangelical minister. Bart, who had for 30 years followed in his father's footsteps, decided a few years ago that he no longer believed in Christianity. And while the revelation was painful for his parents, they managed to keep talking. Rifts caused by religion is not always handled so well. Bart was fantastic to talk to because for him it was, um, it, you know, his relationship with church had to do with his immediate family relationships. And it sounds like the Campolos are, are very close and loving family. So, you know, that kind of conflict, um, I can't imagine how hard that must have been to kind of find their way through that. And, but it looks like they did it really successfully and you know kudos to them because so many people don't and and that that's the part that really gets heartbreaking is when you have loved ones that you that you you can't communicate with even making this film i i have family uh an in-law who's who's very religious actually a couple of them and there was a when they found out that we were making this film um Leif and I, that there was some definite pushback and there was some definite suspicion and and um, there's definitely a few salty conversations <laughs> that <laughs> went along with the, no, we're not trying to prove you wrong. We're just trying to talk about what you do when you don't believe and and the idea that not believing is is actually perfectly okay was a really tough one to get through. So when you take that and then you amp it up to um, being the son of an evangelist, those conversations must have been really, really difficult. The film Losing Our Religion unveils the pain when belief in God is lost. You just take belief with clergy people as kind of a given. It's just it's just part of the job. Right. And and in a sense, it's, it's not. It's more than that how heartbreaking it was for people to lose what they felt was a real relationship. You know, that was, that was so, so surprising to me. I kind of knew that there was, but not to the degree that I really found. And it it was um, in some cases it was really heartbreaking because that loss was very real. Um, And then there's the fractures within your human relationships that, that are really tough to take. Because you're not a different person. You're, you still care about people. You still want them in your life. And when, that's, when the belief gets chosen over the person, that's, uh, that's a tough thing to swallow. So what happens when you decide to let it go? No more God. No more church. What then? Is there a secular movement at the ready to embrace these new non-believers? I think right now the secular movement, if if you can call it a movement, is going through some growing pains itself. Uh, you know, we've got the new atheists, and we have kind of the hardcore skeptics who don't want anything church-like or community-like or anything like that. It's all just about believe, not believing in God. Then you've got the the humanists who say yes, but we still want to do the social justice work that the liberal churches have, you know, really been at the forefront. I think there's lots of connections that can be made. But yeah, secular communities where you don't have any of the religious aspects of church, but you've got all of the beneficial community aspects of of, of a church type community, which actually seems like 
a brilliant solution to 21st century isolation to me anyway i i just i was fascinated and they were a lot of fun those the 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 con you know getting together with the congregation at west hill uh houston oasis in in houston texas uh were just such a lovely bunch of people and then we went to a Sunday morning rave with the Sunday Assembly at their um, North American convention in Atlanta, which was, you know, pop songs and silly stories and people talking and, and just generally so positive and happy and uplifting. And, you know, it was, it was so much fun. I think the Houston Oasis has it right when they say people are more important than beliefs. So I think that's, that's the key right there. <laughs> for me anyway, is that, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe. We should all be compassionate and kind and, and look to lift each other up. Belief in God is, you know, that's not that big a deal. I mean, even, even in churches that have belief in God, I mean, God doesn't mow the lawn. God doesn't take care <laughs> of all of the stuff we got to do. It's human beings doing all of that. And, exactly. and you know, so exactly. <laughs> The clergy interviewed in this film, Losing Our Religion, are members of the Clergy Project. The Clergy Project is an online support group for clergy who no longer hold supernatural beliefs. I'm a member. I also happen to be in the film. Leslie Mayer interviewed me in my church. She even got another question in this interview. I've done a bunch of podcasts and stuff, but this is the first time I've actually talked directly to anybody who was in the film. As a member of the clergy project, do you think we got it right? I do. I do think you got it right. I think you got it right, particularly in telling the story of Brendan and Jen. Uh, you, you, you discovered the humanity of the issue that's really what this, to me, is all about. And, of course, what the clergy project is all about. Because I think what people think in terms of the clergy who um, no longer believe is that they're bad and they should just, you know, suck it up and, and quit. And leave their families, you know, floundering. Such a simplistic, hardcore answer. The institutional refusal to see the humanity of the people they care about or are charged yeah. to care about. That's that's my, if I have a beef, my institutional bureaucrats, hey, these are your people. And That's, and I think, that's an I, interesting take on it because, uh, you know, for me, um, I, I did have a, a family member who's, who's very uh, into church. And when I said, I'm making this film about preachers who aren't believers, they said, you know, well, what happens? And I said, well, you know, they said, well, they should lose their jobs. And I said, well, sometimes they do. And they said, well, that's what they deserve. And I kind of went, you're one of the most compassionate people I know. Are you sure you really think that? And it, they had to stop and, and really run it through their brain for a minute before they went, oh, that is kind of mean, isn't it? <laughs> you know, so it, it was a it, it was a, an interesting take on that that I hadn't expected. But but I'm glad to hear that I kind of that I did get it mostly right, because the experience of the clergy project people um, was something that I really wanted to make sure that I that I that we express through the film properly. With the edit, there's always the the, the danger that you're going to put your own stamp on it a little bit too hard. And uh, so I'm glad that came through. Losing Our Religion is the name of this new feature-length documentary. As sad as the story is for those clergy and their families stuck in an institution that requires belief from those who no longer can do so, your film ends on a hopeful note. 
Yeah, you know, it, it was. And I, I think at one point I thought, oh, I'm going to be stuck with a bit of a sad ending. And, you know, which is not necessarily a bad thing, because th there are people who are in quite a plight uh, in the clergy project. But when we got to the end of production and we were pulling it together, it's like, no, that we've got actually the material to end on a hopeful note. And I thought that was a stronger ending for people to, to be able to say that, no, you know, this is really difficult. This is really tough, but there is some hope there that there is a way to, you know, carry forward. As, as Greta Vosper said in the film, it's a long road. It's a hard road, but it's a road. So how can people see the film losing our religion? Well, uh, right now in Canada, we are um, on Documentary Channel, and uh, so we're accessible there, and, and I believe we're accessible through their website right now. Um, we are also putting together community screenings, so we have a distributor who has a way of, of uh, kind of a package deal where we can, you know, plan a, help plan a community screening, support you can go to our website, losingourreligion.ca. We will be releasing DVDs and uh, the ability to download the film, but not until September of 2018. Leslie Mayer of Zoot Pictures, and her feature documentary is Losing Our Religion. Thanks so much. Thank you, John. You're listening to The Beloved Community. I'm John Schuck. My next guest is David Chandler, the high school physics teacher who made NIST, that's the National Institute of Standards and Technology, revise their report on the destruction of World Trade Center Building 7, a 47-story building that collapsed in the late afternoon of September 11, 2001. David Chandler showed that the Building 7 fell at freefall that is the acceleration of gravity. David Chandler lives in Portland, and he visited me in the KBOO studios. Welcome, David. Thank you for having me. So how did this encounter with NIST happen? So they were claiming, and this was as of August before their final report, which came out in November, they were claiming... And, and this year is... This was 2008. Okay. And... They were claiming that it came down 40% slower than freefall, which is outrageously, uh, you can look at it and you can tell that it's essentially freefall. But by actually, I actually did the measurement using their data and it nailed it. It's right smack at freefall. So um, they had a technical briefing conference and I, I wanted to get in a question if I could. Uh, but when I applied to be able to submit a question, uh, you had to put down an institution, association, and all that. I wasn't a professor at the university or anything like that. I just taught at some high school. Uh, uh -huh. I was teaching down in Central California at the time. I got away with very supportive administration, so I never got in trouble for all this. But I did the measurements using a, a tool that I used in my physics classes where you can actually take a video and put markers and then it can actually capture the positions and the timings and come up with velocities and accelerations and all kinds of stuff. This also, I want to emphasize, I did not single-handedly do this. This was a team effort. There's a bunch of us who were trying to um, 
getness to acknowledge freefall. So my measurements were sort of behind it, but uh, I had an opportunity to ask my question, and so I have a video of that, and Sean Sunder, who was the uh, director of this whole program, um, stumbled all over the place in trying to answer it, but then he sort of brushed it off. And then later in that same interview, uh, Stephen Jones came up with, it's, it was seemingly a much more trivial question. It was and Stephen like, Jones, again, for folks from BYU professor who yes. really helped getting a lot of he this was, started. He was one of the premier science people who got in on this, who convinced me there's a role for science in this, and that's what it helped enable, helped encourage me to put in my two cents worth, too. All right. But so Stephen Jones came in and he just picked, a, there was a word they used. They said that assuming the building came down at constant speed. And he said, don't you mean constant acceleration? It's clearly accelerating. And uh, they stumbled all over that question, too, to the point where Sean Sunder pointed to somebody else and said, can somebody clarify this? And they said, I think we'll have to change this in the final report. So in my understanding, it was that incident where over this, do you use speed or acceleration? And over that little triviality, it's sort of like almost a, a typo, it was a concept, what I call a conceptual typo, where you use the wrong word, but they actually committed on video to change the report. And when they changed the report, they didn't just change the word. They could have literally swapped out acceleration in the place of speed and let it be done. No, they went through and did an entire new analysis, which acknowledged freefall. Now they turned right around and denied the implications of freefall. So they're still lying, but they actually uh, came out with a graph and they have this little red line that goes through the data and it has the equation of the line and it has the slope and it literally is the acceleration of gravity. What they're saying is that there's nothing under this. They have to be saying that. Well, they have to be, but they didn't. They tried to say all of this is consistent with our analysis, which is total bunk. There's mm -hmm. no way. It's, it's clearly, uh, I mean, it, once you say that it came down in free fall, that's why they were saying it's 40% slower than free fall earlier. They were trying to deny free fall because they knew, in fact, in the conference where Sean Sunder was answering me, uh, he was saying, Oh, free fall is when there's no resistance, uh, when there's no structure below the, the free falling object. And in this case, there clearly was resistance and there was many connections that had to be broken and they couldn't have all happened simultaneously. So he was making the case that it could not have been free fall. The problem is the evidence shows it actually was free fall. And so it couldn't be free fall if it's a natural collapse. Right. But it was free fall as observation shows, therefore the assumptions are bad. But they deny that and it's, it's what they have now in the final report. If you look in the final report, they did not substitute the new explanation for the old. The old explanation is still there in full where they're claiming 40% slower than free fall and it's overlaid with this new analysis so it's a total hodgepodge. It makes no sense whatsoever. If you read the, you can go online and find the final report and it's gibberish. 
And, you know, I could spell out the gibberish in great detail, but anybody who's listening who has any kind of technical understanding of basic physics could read through that and try to make sense of it. I challenge you to make sense of that. It doesn't hold together. But it's enough to have a whole big document of complex stuff that, well, I guess, and the name NIST that people yeah. trust them, which yeah. is, of course, the whole yeah. thing behind and, the official story. And who's going to question it now? And they just basically declared everything closed, and uh, they won't answer questions. And it's like, um, you know, it's a, it's a power play. It's not a rational argument. It's, uh, it's a con job in terms of the name NIST carry some clout, and so forth. But it's, it's not a uh, coherent uh, statement of any kind. Just recently, Professor uh, Leroy Hulsey of the mm -hmm. University of Alaska Fairbanks has done also a lot of computer uh, recreation, yeah. uh, had the original plans of Building 7. Can you talk a little bit about sure. uh, his work? Yeah. Um, there's a number of us who have been working on the issue of Building 7. And I want to mention one name is Tony Zambodi. He's an engineer back in, um, I think he's in New Jersey. But um, he has been on top of this for a long time looking at, I was looking at the, the gross move, move, movement of the building, the collapse and so forth. He was looking at the actual structure and the NIST explanation for how the collapse got initiated, their claim on how it got initiated. And their, their claim is that there's a certain column, column 79, and that there's a girder that comes into that column, which is like a horizontal member that comes from the outer wall to that column and so forth. And this girder is sitting on a seat. It's all bolted in and everything, but it's on that seat. And then there's these other beams that are coming into that girder, and they're claiming somehow that those beams expanded due to thermal expansion, pushing the girder off its seat, and therefore, the column was unsupported. They just sort of waved their hands and say this propagated down several floors. So there's a long stretch of the column that was unsupported, and therefore, um, it buckled. And once that column buckled, some sort of a chain reaction occurred, and the whole thing came down. They basically are claiming that if they can show how one column failed, that they have somehow, um, that's all they need to do to show the whole building collapsed the way it did. What a number of people, uh, there's a guy named David Cole, and there's Tony Zambodi and these guys, what they were doing is they're turning up evidence that NIST, in their modeling of this situation, falsified the data. Like there were actually shear studs that uh, connected the, the beams and the girders to, I guess the girders, to the floor. So it was composite with the concrete floor. And... Uh, there's um, the the size they gave for the the seat of that girder was uh, undersized compared to what it really was, so it was actually a bigger seat than they claimed, and one thing after another, and they made all sorts of um, very dubious assumptions, like here's this beam that's going to expand. If you were to take a beam, and you heat it up so it expands, you would expect that it would push out symmetrically in both directions, not NIST. They assumed the outer wall, which stayed rigid, and all of the expansion uh, took place in one direction to push this girder off. Well, it doesn't work. The other thing is, as you heat the beam, not only is it going to expand due to thermal expansion, it's going to sag. And so that cancels out some of this. 
And so there's a maximum distance. If you take the expansion and the sagging and put them together, there's a maximum expansion that's even possible. And that's not enough to push the girder off. And then there's braces that were left out. And there was a, uh, there was a stiffener at the end of the girder that would make the girder stronger by a factor of 10 at that connection than they assumed. So there's one thing after another that they falsified simply to get so that their model would fail. And if they can get, if they could demonstrate failure in their model, they could say, aha, we can publish this and walk away from it. By the way, do you know when that final report came out? Uh, no, actually. It came out in November after the election. So it, it was in the lame duck period after uh, Obama was elected just before uh, Bush went out of office. So they wanted to close the books on this before the start of a new administration. So it was a, it was a rush job at the end to try to put all this stuff together. And the stuff that they put in there makes no sense. Now, what Lero Halsey did, actually the architects and engineers from 9-11 Truth raised the money and contracted with him to do a new modeling of the building uh, comparable to the concept of what NIST should have done. And what Lero Halsey did, he and a couple of grad students, actually it's he and a grad student and a postdoc, the three of them, they actually did two modelings. They did it on two separate kinds of software and um, so they could check back and forth and get it right. They found endless uh, inconsistencies in the way NIST model uh, was put together. Like NIST didn't even model the entire floors. They just modeled the end where they were claiming something was happening. And the side effect is it makes the rest of the building, since you're not modeling it, it makes it all seem rigid. Well, it's not rigid. Everything's gonna flex and give and so forth. So it's not gonna behave the way NIST model claims it did. They basically are showing how flaky NIST model really was. And uh, they have now, I believe, completed the modeling. They've, they have their final report that there is no way with their modeling, you can put fire anywhere you want in whatever intensity you want to claim. It's not going to bring the building down. So fire could not bring the building down. What they're continuing to do, and I haven't seen the final, final report yet, but they're trying to look at scenarios on how the actual collapse could have taken place and what would have been necessary to actually get free fall. And so how do you get free fall? That's what was observed. And if the modeling can't produce free fall, then you've got a problem. So basically what the modeling is, for those who don't understand computer modeling, this is basically just doing the math uh, where you systematically are doing the math on every single connection in the building and uh, seeing how it all systematically works together. And they're, uh, they're basically coming up with uh, the conclusion this building could not possibly have come down due to fire as NIST claimed. And they, uh, I'm speaking with David Chandler. He is a member of Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth, also the coordinator for scientists for 9-11 Truth. We're talking about right now uh, Building 7 that came down, but that many people don't even know yet today that there was a third mm -hmm. tower that came down after all of this yeah. uh, uh, late in the afternoon of uh of September 11th, 2001, and David Chandler has done uh, research on it um, in terms of 
calculating that it did come in free fall acceleration for two and two and a half seconds and and the uh, making the NIST have to make at least that change in their report, which, as you've said, is, is still a bunch of gibberish. It's total gibberish. This report was a political document. Yeah, NIST is a very well-respected scientific and engineering organization. It used to be called the National Bureau of Standards. It had, was held in very high regard. But as with other agencies, this is actually an agency. It's under the Commerce Department. And it was a Bush level. I mean, the top was being, uh, it was politically controlled. And so the people at the top of this investigation were determining the outcome ahead of time, like so many other science. You know, the whole term Bush science uh, was commonplace during that era, that uh, science was being made to conform to uh, pre-existing, you know, determinations, you know. Now it's at to a point where, all are culpable in some way or another. It yep. isn't just Bush's, you know, yep. NIST. It's now America's NIST. Well, yes, this entire uh, official myth of 9-11, I call it official myth, official story, whatever you want to call it. Uh-huh. It, is, it is blatantly fabricated. It is uh, basically designed to pin the blame on, on the hijackers. And so we were attacked. On the outside, uh, Muslims, Arabs, all these people are being discriminated against because of this. It basically was created to give us a, a rationale to go to war. And so it's, the, it's a linchpin of our whole foreign policy. So it doesn't matter that it doesn't make sense. It really, really doesn't make sense. It is so, but the other thing that's happening is people like me who actually you know, I don't have any strings attached from any government contracts or anything like that. I mean, okay, so I was a high school physics teacher. I was a little more than that. I taught physics in college and high school, and I have a pretty decent background in this stuff. Uh, but Pete, there's a lot of people out there who know a lot more than I do. But I find that even talking, I, I presented to a, a, there was a physics conference right here in Portland, actually, a few years ago. And I present, I've had a poster session and a little talk I gave. And the vast majority of these people had no idea what was going on and sort of wanted to stay clear of it. It was sort of, it was taboo to discuss this. But at my poster session, as people would come by, they would smirk or snicker or something. And I'd say, did you realize Building 7 came down at absolute free fall? And then I pointed them to my poster and they'd go over and look at it. And sometimes they would stand there for five or ten minutes and they wander away and they come back with their friends. Because, uh, you know, it's the type of thing that somebody that has the background to recognize the implications of that statement. I mean, that statement by itself says it was a demolition. Right. There's no way you can have a building coming down through itself unless it's been demolished by external uh, Things. I mean, usually explosives. There are other ways to demolish a building. But basically, you'd get a demolition of one sort or another is the only way you're going to get that kind of free fall. And we've all seen it. I, even Dan Rather admitted it, yeah. oddly enough, at the, well, the very day of. He said, it looks right. like controlled demolition to me. It looks yeah. exactly like it. And basically, by doing the science, what we're saying is you're not crazy. Right. What you're seeing is a correct perception. It really had to have been what you're actually seeing that it looks like it is, which is a demolition. 
I find it so hard. I mean, Kebu here, this is one of the few places I can uh, talk about this and actually get an audience. Uh, there's There are a lot of places where I'm not allowed to. I mean, there are people who I wouldn't believe it, but they won't let me get half a sentence out about this topic before they literally shut me down. Uh, people who should have, uh, who should be open-minded and who should be, uh, technically competent to listen to what I have to say, and if they disagree, they could say why. But no, they won't let me even get half a sentence out because they can't be bothered. I've been told to my face, you know, conspiracy thinking is a, is a mental condition. You know, it's like, okay, I can see how you can get off the rails on conspiracy thinking. I, I get it. But what I'm talking about is not that kind of conspiracy thinking. This is looking at concrete evidence of what really happened and being willing to go where the evidence leads. I'm speaking with David Chandler, who is the coordinator for scientists for 9-11 Truth. Can you go back a little bit in time when you first uh, discovered from yourself that there was something wrong with the official story? Okay. In the early years, I basically, I wondered what happened to the buildings, and I was very interested when there was, there was a NOVA program that came out on how the buildings collapsed and all that, and so I eagerly was awaiting for that to be shown, and I took it all in, and I just said, uh-huh, uh-huh, and I didn't really think that critically about it, but it was, uh, you know, I was curious, because it didn't seem like the buildings should have collapsed, but I really didn't dig in on that. And it was actually sometime later, uh, my sister, who's not a scientist, I mean, she's a literature professor, she's on the faculty at Berkeley now and so forth. She went to a conference and brought some videos and literature and stuff and said, you need to look into this. And so she literally urged me to, and I sat down and I looked at some of this. And the thing that caught my attention more than anything else there, there was a picture of the North Tower and there's a projectile coming out of the North Tower with a big whole plume of debris behind it. And it went way out horizontally and landed across the street. It looked like it hit another building. I think it actually went behind the building. But uh, I realized, hey, that trajectory, I could figure out how fast that's going. And I literally took a ruler and stopped the video and took measurements on the television screen and came up with a ballpark estimate that stuff was being ejected at about 60 miles an hour, which, and from high in the building. So at the point where that was ejected horizontally at about 60 miles an hour, I think it turned out to be about 55 miles an hour. I did a measurement later. But the, the material that was moving downward at that point in the building was not moving that fast. This was going horizontally faster than the building was coming down. And that hooked me. And I started digging in. Uh, Jim Hoffman has a website, 9-11. If you look up 9-11 Research, and there's a WTC in the name there somewhere. I don't know exactly how you phrase the URL. But he has a very encyclopedic site, which covered a lot of the scientific material. And I heard um, a thing by, uh, some talk by Stephen Jones. So he was a physicist who was early in on um, plowing through a lot of this stuff. And so I started realizing that there is a body of uh, material out there that some scientists were able to get their teeth into. And I realized, hey, I can do that. And I, I did that measurement. I did it more precisely using a, a tool I had that 
can uh, analyze videos. And uh, I started measuring, I started measuring everything that could be, everything that was moving. And that's where I discovered that Building 7 came down at freefall. The thing about the Building 7, the way it came down, it came down with a level roof line, mm -hmm. straight down. Now, you realize the building would have occupied the area of a football field. It's about 100 meters side. It's, it is 100 meters side to side. And I actually measured out the other dimension. It would literally just fit within a foot or two, fit exactly on a football field. That's how That's big a building yeah. this is. And for it to come down with a level roof line, it means all of the columns across the entire width of that building had to be made to fail within a fraction of a second. Because otherwise you get tipping and tumbling and all kinds of stuff going on. But it came straight down, which means it was a coordinated taking out of all of the support across the whole width simultaneously. So yeah, building seven is the clearest case of a classic demolition. The North Tower and the South Tower, the explosions sort of like, it was like a zipper coming down the building. It had to be done differently because they're so tall that if you tried to blow them up at the bottom, you're going to get these things tipping all over the place. And so they literally had it, a, a series of explosions taking it apart floor by floor as you come down. It wasn't every floor, but it, it was pretty close. It was, it was just a, a downward chain of events timed. I mean, it appears to be timed so that the, the material that's falling on the sides pretty much creates a, a veil that covers what's going on underneath. But yeah. you can see under that curtain of falling debris and actually see all of these explosive ejections. The little all the way down. squibs, they call them. Well, right? yeah, there's yeah, there's that, but there's a lot more. You can actually see, you can just see floor by floor, bang, you know, just pushing all this material out. One of the earliest videos I did was looking at a corner shot of the North Tower, and I just put it in an infinite loop and commented away. And it's if you just want to convince yourself, just look at that video, and that gives you plenty of raw material. Okay, I want to give my website, my personal yep. website on this, and there's several, I, myself, and there's another, there's an engineer from Florida, and uh, Frank Leggy from Australia, but he's uh, deceased uh, within the last year or so. And, but we have all of our work on 911speakout.org. Going back and doing all these other overlays of measurements and so forth, it's a matter of confirming that your direct perceptions are not misleading you. Right. And so it's important to do the other. But if you start by just what do you actually see, you're going to see explosions. It's very clear if you look at it. And it's not coming down, as you said, though, at freefall acceleration. No. Explain that. Okay. The top of the building, the top section of the North Tower, uh, there's a couple of layers of detail here, but I'll just take, if you take the simple version of this, that it's a block at, at the top, about 12 floors, coming down, supposedly crushing the columns underneath. It's not pancaking of floors. That that doesn't work because if you pancake the floors, there's an inner structure that would still be standing. In order for the tower to come down, you have to crush the columns. You have to cause them to buckle repeatedly all the way down. And so this 12 floors at the top is not going to crush all of this undamaged, uh, full-strength material below it. What I measured for the roof line of the top section is it came down at two-thirds of freefall, but... Um, the fact is, 
it's coming down at a uniform downward acceleration. And that's the key right there. So if you okay. have a block that's accelerating in a certain direction, that's only going to happen if the net force is in that direction. You have two forces acting. You have gravity downward, you have an upward resistance. And in order for the net force to be downward, gravity is stronger than the resistance, which means the resistance was only supporting like one third of the weight of the, of the structure above it. This structure was designed to support uh, three to five times the weight of what's above it. So literally the implication of this thing coming down at the acceleration that it did, it's accelerating downward uniformly the entire time you can see the roof line. For that to happen, you had to eliminate 90%, at least 90% of the structural support. So that's the numbers. I have a paper actually okay. about that. You can get the details if you want, but that's the implication. So even though it's not free fall, you can, it's a clear indication that the support is being removed. That's why it's accelerating. It's falling into the void of what's been cleared out ahead of it. So what happens now? Um, I mean, know oh, architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth went to the uh, uh, architects, um, National Organization of Architects, the, yeah. and, and, and they didn't have very much luck. They made a presentation yeah. in getting the votes. And so these are all architects and engineers. What well, are they afraid of? Well, the, them, in my experience with these physics teachers and everybody's experience trying to talk to the press. I mean, KBU is rather unique here. But I mean, you go to the mainstream press and you just, uh, they won't give you the time of day. And so uh, even though, I mean, they say, okay, conspiracy theories, that's a bunch of uh, wild ideas with no evidence. No, the official myth is the wild ideas with no evidence. We have tons of evidence, but it has been so ingrained, this is off limits for any kind of respectable uh, discussion that you can't put in the door. Uh, so it's not just one agency or another. It's sort of a, uh, I mean, even among the listeners, I mean, the skeptic societies, I mean, you'd think, well, they would be open-minded. No, they're, they're lined up against us. Or alternative media, even. Even, yeah, hey. Democracy Now, yeah, for example. Yeah, Amy Goodman will not talk about this. Mm -hmm. I mean, she did talk about it a couple times, but it was like very limited, uh, and it was not giving a fair, I think David Ray Griffin was invited on and unbeknownst to him, they had the opposite side debating him. Even he thought he was going in for just an interview. Right. No, it turned out to be, I mean, it was sub, you know, subverted. So Amy Goodman won't talk about it. Hey, Bill Moyers won't talk about it. I mean, he, they make fun of it. Uh, uh, Bill Maher, I mean, name all of the, uh, you know, Daily Show, what's his name? John Stewart. Yeah. All these people, make fun of conspiracy theory stuff uh, to the point where you can't, even in liberal uh, media, this doesn't get in. Yeah. So yes, uh, we do have solid data. Uh, so, and I wanna say this, yes, there are lots of totally crazy conspiracy theories about 9-11 out there. And some of them my conviction is that they're planted because the more they can strew the landscape with all the crazy stuff, 
the more they can use a broad brush to paint the whole movement. Easy to dismiss, and that's why David was talking about, David Ray Griffin was talking about the importance of the, for example, the 9-11 consensus panel. Right. Or, or the scientists for 9-11 truth. Right. Look, let's just, here's the facts, here's the evidence, yeah. stick with that. Mm-hmm. David Chandler, I appreciate your work, and I uh, appreciate you spending time with me today. And the, uh, give me your website one more time. 911speakout.org. You're listening to The Beloved Community. I'm John Shuck. Arthur Dewey and Celine Lilly are both religious scholars. Art Dewey teaches at Xavier University in Cincinnati, and Celine Lilly is an adjunct professor at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. They are together this weekend for a seminar entitled The Politics of Jesus, making the case that both the historical Jesus and the early movements that continued in his name resisted the patriarchy and the domination of the Roman Empire. I talked with them by Skype earlier this week. Now, some may object that Jesus was political. Instead, some might say that Jesus is above politics. He's spiritual, not political. What would you say to that from an historical perspective? Well, uh, you really can't get out of politics in the first century because there was no separation of church and state. That theoretical distinction never existed. So, for example, uh, we would really start with Rome and the the political agenda of Rome, and it's filled with the uh, sense that the divine world has favored Rome. Uh, all you have to do is look at some of the Roman art, and you would see that. I'm thinking of the Gemma Augustia, where Augustus is sitting on the throne of Zeus. He's effectively a son of God, basically sitting in orderly triumph over oppressed peoples, the Dacians underneath. The imagery that you would see if you would walk into any Roman town, the language that you would hear, the message that Rome was presenting was, this is the way the world works. Be prepared to deal with us. And uh, so when Jesus used the phrase empire of God, people would already have in their own imaginations an understanding of what empire was. What kind of empire was Rome? According to Dr. Celine Lilly, all of Rome's myths of origin were rape narratives. Rome really made this connection between itself as um, the dominant, um, you know, Caesar was called father of the fatherland, and it had its colonies underneath it. They used Roman marriage as a paradigm for these larger ideas of empire. And so as kind of the patrifamilias or the head of the family, the manly man and everyone else was under him and penetrable and usable by him. This is the same way that Rome kind of saw itself in relationship with the colonies. And often this relationship of um, Rome to its colonies was figured um with rape narratives, with this idea of violatable, usable, feminized colonies that served Rome. Celine Lilly is a student of early Christian texts that are not in the Bible, but many were discovered as recently as 1945 in a cave near Nag Hammadi, Egypt. She challenges the notion that these texts emphasize the spiritual over the material, and instead she sees them as texts of empowerment and resistance. Um, This emphasis on um, the spiritual kind of versus the material that has uh, 
kind of been at the fore of most scholarship over the last 50 years. Um, I think it I think it really came from a place of thinking of these texts as heresy rather than um, really looking and seeing what's inside of the texts themselves. And over and over and over again, they emphasize community. They emphasize taking care of one another. Um, one of my, um, I shouldn't say one of my favorite texts, um, because so many of them, so many of them have so much richness within them. But, you know, a text like the Gospel of Truth, which was found at Nag Hammadi, this is one of these texts that has historically kind of been interpreted as being anti-material material, really this emphasis on the spiritual, but the whole text is really about knowing God through the five senses. And I don't know what is more material than that, um, where it really talks about how um, there's this lovely line in it about talking about um, that evil is done kind of by a single person, but justice is done among others. So there is this real stress on community in these texts. And my hunch about what's actually happening in them is that these are communities that were faced with um, with violence, faced with maybe threat of torture. And when your body is um, oppressed, when it constantly is under um, threat by others, when you don't have control of what others are doing to your body, having a spiritual place that is yours alone and your connection with God in the midst of these violations ends up becoming a place of empowerment. Celine Lilly is the author of The Rape of Eve, The Transformation of Roman Ideology in Three Early Christian Retellings of Genesis. So in these stories of um, these, these three different retellings of the Genesis narrative where Eve is raped by these rulers of the world, these are the only sets of texts that I found in the Western world that deal with rape where the blame for and responsibility for the violence is actually placed on the perpetrators rather than the victim. So this totally changes this paradigm that Rome uses not only for thinking about um, marriage and property in the marriage relationship, but about the relationship with Rome and its colonies. If this early Christian literature should be read as resistance literature to the Roman Empire, does that pose a challenge to Christians today also to resist domination and oppression? The first thing for any community in terms of resistance is memory. The threat today is to forget, uh, to be so dissipated, to be so drawn and quartered by the various things that are happening that you don't stay still for a moment and remember why you're there to be aware to sit still breathe deeply and to remember what's important and i think what christians have they, they have resources uh for rec recalling and they have a, a challenge to remember that they're in a tradition that is much larger than they think. So that's the first thing, that the memory is in itself an act of resistance. The second thing is that it's a communal memory. It's, and these are the stories that come from real people who made some decisions to remember it in certain ways, and we can pass them on. So there, there is a fundamental communal and memorial aspect to what we can do. 
third point would be that these communities become communities of resistance. Um, I've begun to look, for example, at the letters of Paul as letters from the underground uh, designed to basically support these communities of resistance within the empire. If we begin to see that, then when we look at what we're doing in terms of today and what the churches are doing today, we might have to deal with some self-critique. Which empire are we serving? Is it because we don't see any alternatives? Is it because we don't see any other way? Uh, what have we forgotten? And so the task is, first of all, to remember. This is the Beloved Community, resources for activism, every second Friday at 9 a.m. on KBOO. I'm John Shuck. Thanks to my guests, Leslie Mayer, David Chandler, Arthur Dewey, and Celine Lilly. For a podcast of this episode, go to kboo.fm forward slash beloved community. Be well.